Hi, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of It's the People, our interview series where we explore the inside story of building companies and investment portfolios with high-octane founders, limited partners, and fund managers. We hope these conversations push you to be even better at what you do. In this episode, my partner Andy Greenfield and I, Wills Hapworth, had the opportunity to interview Robert Johnson. Robert is a serial entrepreneur and investor in the technology and oil and gas sectors. He has built and sold numerous companies, including Team Support in 2018 in the customer support market and Sundance Digital in 2006 in the television software industry. He currently sits on the board of a Dallas-based venture capital firm. In our conversation, we discussed a wide range of topics, including the relationship and parallels he's observed between his passion for flying planes and a career as a leader and company founder, his insights about when to know to get out of your own way, his counterintuitive and yet reassuring perspectives on risk, his recommendations on how to have a successful exit, and much, much more. To start things off, Robert begins the conversation with his life story in 60 seconds. Before we begin, we'd like to note that this interview is for informational purposes only, and that the opinions expressed should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. TIA Ventures is a seed stage fund focusing primarily on early stage business-to-business technology companies with an obsessive focus on end customers and early teams. Robert, thank you for joining us. Uh, What we'd love to do is get rolling with a, uh, if you could give us a 60 second version of your life story, which is going to be probably one of the biggest challenges you've had this week. I talk really fast, so it's not a problem. I graduated from the amazing Colgate University in 1994, stumbled into being number two of a small software company, and ended up taking that company over in about 96, and grew that to be one of the largest providers of uh, software in the television space over the next 10 years. Sold that in 2006, uh, had an oil and gas company, actually around my dad for a couple of years. That was a lot of fun. We sold that to a uh, Canadian public company. I sat on their board for several years. Uh, and then in 2008, I started a com- little company called Team Support. And uh, Team Support was a, or still is, a customer support and success company. Uh, we did a private equity transaction with them in 18. And I remained on as CEO for a couple more years. I left the company in August of 20. That ah, wait. 50 that like 45, 50 seconds? Yeah, we still have time to spare here, Robert. It, you know, if we could, one thing I'd love to do is maybe go back before, you know, 94 Colgate and hear a bit about the kind of origin story of Robert. And in particular, I'd be curious if there are any key moments that pop out that you felt were kind of really defining uh, on the path that you wound up, uh, you know, having in your life. Wow, that's a deep one. Uh, I've had a lot of interviews. I'm not sure I've ever gone back that far very often. Uh, As a kid, I actually moved around a bit internationally. I was actually born in California, moved to Texas for nine months, then lived in London for five years and Toronto for four years. And I really uh, enjoyed living internationally, and I think it did change my outlook on life quite a bit. Uh, We were always in English-speaking countries, so it wasn't particularly foreign, um, but he definitely get a different outlook. And also my parents were big travelers. So we did a lot of travel, especially when we lived in London, uh, to the continental, to continental Europe. So I think that really, um, affected me. We moved down here to Dallas when I was about 13 and 
it's a little hard or probably was, I think it's probably different now, but for somebody who's not a Texan to move down to Texas and be assimilated. And so even through junior high school and high school, I didn't really feel that I was a Texan. And I think that's one of the reasons that pushed me to look to colleges in the Northeast. And uh, pretty much every college I looked at was in the Northeast. I think I might've looked at Grinnell, which is technically Midwest, but uh, and really wanted to go to Dartmouth. And uh, Dartmouth said, that's nice. We really don't want you here. So uh, I got a phone call one day. Uh, I'd applied to Colgate and uh, actually gotten in, got the smallest uh, letter of any admission to uh, any school. It was a little tiny letter. And saying, welcome to the class of 1994. And I was like, oh, great, Colgate, okay. But I got a phone call about two weeks later from a lady named Marie Cronrath. And Marie was the uh, women's head coach, and more importantly for me, the throwing coach at Colgate University. And we just clicked for whatever reason. Uh, she was just a wonderful person, or still is. I haven't talked to her in a long time, but um, and we just clicked, and she convinced me to take a serious look at Colgate. And I did, and ended up coming to Colgate. And uh, by that phone call, it turns out later, I didn't realize at the time, but I ended up being a Division One recruited athlete. And ended up throwing for Colgate for all four of my years. I was a discus shot put uh, weight and hammer specialist. And that one phone call really changed the direction of my life in a lot of different ways. Uh, obviously, coming to Colgate was a big, big issue for me. Probably the biggest part of that was I met my wife here. Uh, Kelly Johnson is uh, was a thrower at Colgate. We met on the track and field team, started dating into our freshman year. And here we are, gosh, 25 plus years later and two kids later. Uh, very much thanking the fact that we both went to Colgate. Hmm. That, that's because uh, Wills and I were speculating. How did this guy, who seems like a you know he's real Texas, end up in this tiny town in upstate New York? And you know, and the irony of all that is, uh, one of the very first people I met on Colgate's campus, I introduced myself as, "Hi, I'm Robert Johnson. I'm from Texas, but I'm not a Texan." Thinking that. You know, people in Northeast had this really bad view of Texas from watching G.R. Ewing in Dallas or something. Yeah. And he kind of chuckles immediately and looks at me and goes, oh, okay, Tex. And it stuck like glue. I've been <laughs> ever since anybody at Colgate to the point where there are several people I graduated with who are like, what's your real name? We just don't use Tex. <laughs> well, Ro Robert, you shared a bunch of things in the background that I, I think we'd love to cover, including sports and, you know, your education, um, your family. But, you know, we, we like to start out early in, in these interviews with some kind of uh, question that maybe is we'd call in your face. So it's kind of looking through your background. We know you well. Um, you know, we'll learn throughout the interview. You're a pilot. Uh, you competed di Division One sports and throwing. Uh, you started companies. You've run companies. And and I say this in the in the most flattering of all possible ways, but I get the sense you're the kind of person who likes to be in control. Yeah, that's fair. And yet you do things that many would look at and say those are out of control things: starting companies, flying planes. Can you just unpack like the juxtaposition between those two things? And maybe as a specific question, what do you think is controllable? I would say the exact opposite of your final statement there, that those things are out of control. I would argue that one of the reasons I do all of that is because it gives me a lot more control. Um, let's take airplanes, for example. Being in the back of a commercial airliner, you literally have no control. You are going from point A to point B. When somebody else tells you you're going to go uh, in the seat that they tell you you're going to sit in, um, and you get 
fed the food they tell you you're going to eat. And it's fine. Commercial air travel in the U.S. is uh, incredibly safe. And I, I've gotten millions of miles on American Airlines. But flying is the exact opposite of that. I have complete control of where I go, when I go, if I want to go or not. Um, and it is, in many ways, the ultimate level of travel freedom. And I've been very lucky. I've been flying since I was 19 uh, and been able to use aviation to further my businesses uh, and now do it as a career as well. So it's aviation has been a huge part of my life for a lot of different reasons. I would say the same thing about companies. And we're all investors and we invest in various companies. But frankly, once you write your check, you have limited uh, options to control the company. Certainly in the public markets, you're just investing in a company and have no say. In the private markets, you have some say. But really, at the end of the day, uh, even with the board seat, you're still at the mercy of the CEO and the management team to run that company. As a CEO and founder, I think it's the other way around. I do have control of my own destiny. And if I look at companies that I've invested in, I've invested the most uh, in time and wealth into my own companies and frankly, been the most successful there. So I would say my thesis might be the exact opposite of yours. I think I have the most control when flying my own airplane or running my own company. Robert, can I wrestle with you for a second? <clears throat> because for our, for our listeners, uh, you don't exactly, uh, shall we say, do traditional flying. You t you do flying that, to my recollection, has a certain uh, amount of, uh, uh, shall we say, aerobatic elements to it, uh, which for which is not exactly. Yeah, I'm flying along, you know. I may turn left or right and then land or take off. Um, so so the kind of flying you do is at least to the casual observer, orders of magnitude riskier and takes far more skill and control. Um, and as you know, there are things that can happen doing that kind of flying. And when it comes to running your own business, we know, and you know, as both an investor and an entrepreneur, there are things that are just out of your control. Doesn't matter how good you are, uh, the pandemic comes along. You know, we we had one of our portfolio companies, you know, was totally based on travel and people traveling. And it doesn't matter how good you are. If everything stops, if ever, you know, no one can travel, you're in trouble. Um, or, a, you know, a giant competitor springs up that you had no idea had interest in your space with a hundred times manpower, woman power, finance, financial resources, et cetera. So, there are, you know, you do these things that are, to, again, to our view, are inherently, you know, riskier, more challenging. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what, you know, that part of you, because I'm with Wills. We look at Robert Johnson and you're the kind of guy we'd, we like to actually see come out of the cockpit in our, uh, in the 747, you know, because you have that reassuring feel. Um Everything's in control, but you're doing these other things. You know, I get that a lot. People say I'm a risk taker, and I, I don't think I am, which is um, perhaps an odd thing to say. Y you are right. A lot of, uh, first off, a lot of the flying I do, the vast majority of flying I do is straight level, going places, and using it as an, an instrument of travel. Um, but you're also right. I am a professional air show pilot. I fly uh, a, an old airplane, post-World War II military airplane in air shows around the country. And I love, I absolutely love it. Uh, is that risky? Without a doubt. And when I first started doing that, 
I had a pretty long and frank conversation with my wife and kids and said, look, I've got this opportunity. It is not by anybody's definition, something that is safe. And uh, they, you know, thanks to all of them, they said, Robert, you want to do this your entire life, go do it. And so I have been doing it the last five or six years. Um, of the things that I do, that's probably the one thing that I would consider the most risky. Um, and there are certain things there that are out of my control, um, mechanical, weather, whatever. But we do a lot of practice, a lot of work to mitigate those risks. And um, I, you know, ultimately, I, I do think it is safe. Uh, is it as safe as sitting here talking on a Zoom call? No, absolutely not. Um, but I would, uh, again, I'll push back with you a little bit on the riskiness of being an entrepreneur. We are all investing our time in a job and wealth in the market or in ourselves or whatever we choose to do with that. I would argue, at least in my experience, there is a less risk when I'm deploying my own capital, my own time on something that I have 100% control of. Uh, you talked about the pandemic and anybody who had money in a 401k or an IRA or in the markets in 2020 got decimated and you had no control over it. Now, you probably had maybe a little less stress than if you're running a company at the time and had to shut your entire company down in March of 20, which I did, or at least move everybody back home. But um, I argue that you've got more control of that and you're not just along for the ride. So I would not by any means call myself a control freak. But yeah, am I, am I a type A personality that likes uh, being in control? Yeah, I would say that's pretty much the truth. Your perspective on risk taking, and, and you you said I don't think of myself actually as a risk taker. I mean, did this was this a perspective that you always had, or was did it like evolve? Did it come from somewhere? Because yeah, I mean, you've you know, and you know, hopefully we get to cover all the dimensions of you in this interview. Like you do a, a lot of things that in sport, in work, in life that are, you know entrepreneurial you're the leader like where do you have any memory of where this came from or did you always have this perspective i don't i can't remember when the first person said oh you're a pilot or you're an entrepreneur you must be a risk taker and i i don't remember when that was but i i, I know i've had that conversation dozens of times yeah probably more than that and my reaction is no i'm really not um i'm not averse to risk that's for sure, but I don't actively wake up and say, I'm going to go be risky today. Yeah. And everything I do has a lot of mitigation of risk around it, whether it's investing or whether it's flying. Um, so I don't really look at it as risky per, per se. Um, and everything that we do every day is always a balance to some extent of risk versus reward. And there's a lot of people who don't have suppose risk tolerance is the right term to be an entrepreneur. And I, I have, and that's, it's served me well. Um, but I don't consider myself really a risk taker. So uh, maybe it's just a, a semantics issue. If we could take a, another slice at this. So you're- You're going to keep digging in this wheels, aren't you? Well, no, no, no diff different question. But like, we know you're a pilot. You, you mentioned that you, you know, in college did- uh, shot put, discus, um, hammer. Uh, was there one other that I missed there in the throwing? Weight, case? which is the indoor version of the hammer. It's a 35 pound uh, ball on a small triangular handle. Gotcha. Th those both strike me as individual activities. Maybe you could push back on the 
the flying planes because you do this, you know, in, in formations. And, and then and then you went on to build companies, build teams, work on teams. Um, I'd say oftentimes in our experience, you know, from athletic backgrounds, the, the people that we are working with worked, you know, played team sports. Um, it, it, was it easy to kind of translate from what I think of as single person sports to team sports of building companies, or would you push back and say, Hey, actually those were team sports. It's just not quite as obvious as, as it may appear. Interesting. Um, track and field is a team sport. We are scored as a team, but I would agree. It's very much the events I did in track and field are very much individual events. I'm not relying on anyone else to perform for me to score in a meet. But we train as a team, we practice as a team, um, <laughs> we dated as a team. Um, so there's a lot of teamwork involved in the training, but not necessarily in the execution of the events. And I'm a huge believer in collegiate athletics, uh, and that's a big part of that is the teamwork. And But you're right, it's not teamwork on the field in my particular event. But there was a ton of teamwork in training and uh, preparing for our events. And I think being a CEO is similar. It is being a CEO in many ways is a lonely endeavor. It is not really a team sport. Uh, it is in the fact you're the head coach and or quarterback or whatever metaphor you want to use, and you're relying on that your team to execute, but you're at the end of the day in charge of that team directing them. I think it's much different when you are a, a player on a, a on a team sport where you truly on the field are one of roughly equals all competing. When you're uh, an individual athlete, track and field in this case, or a CEO, you're really relying heavily on your own abilities to both execute and direct. So I think it's a ton of, ton of correlation there uh, that's interesting because i <clears throat> it, it reminds me of uh how when you're the leader initially you may think you see everything and know everything that's going on and i used to say the higher you get the less you see and the less oh, people tell you i you could not andy i could not agree with you more and that's one of the reasons i left in 20 is it was very very hard for me to run a company uh, under COVID with Zoom. And I, I still don't know how I would do that. Uh, I was very much an in-person leader. Um, I always had my office in whatever building we had set up kind of right in the middle. I was never at the end of the hallway. I was always right in the middle of the hall. So everybody had to walk by me. And uh, the number of people who would just drop in and say hi, who would never have talked to me otherwise or talked to the CEO otherwise, uh, was amazing. And when we flipped to a virtual environment, when I had to all of a sudden schedule a call with somebody, if I schedule, if the CEO schedules a call with somebody that's you know three or four down the levels down the organization chart from them and says, hey, can we talk tomorrow at three o'clock? They're going to spend the next 24 hours not sleeping, worrying, oh my God, the CEO wants to talk to me. Um, and it just never is a natural conversation. So as opposed to when I'm having lunch or in the break room or getting a cup of coffee and just chatting with people, I got a lot more of what was really going on in the company. And I think I lost that in March of 20. And I frankly don't know how CEOs are getting the unvarnished truth today. So that's a, that's an interesting study that somebody's going to do sometime. Yeah. 
Robert, there's another element of you, uh, again, looking from the outside, someone, you know, looking at your Facebook or Instagram, whatever, you know, they'd say, oh, this guy's got a wonderful, you know, free freewheeling life of flying and traveling and all this. But there's a part of you that feels very much about, uh, I'll use two words, commitment and mission. You know, the commitment side is, you know, you've been married to your college sweetheart for a long, long time. Um, when you go to companies, you stay there. You 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 have long runs at these companies. It's not like what we often see when we look at resumes, like, ah, one year, two years. Ah, the two years was the long one. And then on the, the so that's kind of the commitment piece. And the mission side, you're a guy who's been giving back for a long time, whether it's on the board of trustees or Operation Airdrop or mentoring young founders. And very often you don't see that till somebody's got more birthdays than you have and you've been doing it for a while. Can you talk a little bit about where that comes from? Was there anything, you know, in your early years that, you know, made that part of who you are or was it something you discovered? I have no idea. Uh, I wish I had this great philosophical answer to your question because it's a great one, but I really don't know. Um, I, now, I, I was an only child. Maybe that was it. I don't know. Um, I, you're right. I've had long runs of companies. I've had two, basically 10-year stints at companies. Um, and the oil and gas was uh, kind of a side project. That was about six years. Actually, it's closer to 10 years. Um, you know, I, I think some of that is just it takes that long to get it done. And I knew I wanted to start them and run them until... Uh, we had the outcomes that I wanted, and I did that in all three cases, and it just ended up being about 10 years each time. Um, you're right, though. I do have a big sense of, I've never termed it mission, but I think it's a good term. Uh, I've been very, very lucky, obviously, in life, and uh, to be able to give back um, in time and abilities to whether it's mentoring kids at Colgate um, or being on one of the several boards I'm on. Has been a it, it, it's a lot of fun for me. I really enjoy it, um, but it also does allow me to give some of my perspective uh, and abilities when I'm involved in flying charities back and pay it forward, so to speak. Got it, Robert. Of all the things that you do, I, I get the sense you don't have much time. And just building on this commitment question, <clears throat> how do you decide, or how might you decide, what the next commitment that you make is like? Again, time is precious and you've got a lot of things going on. How? What's the process by which you decide on like, is this something I want to take on or not? So I stepped away from running team support uh, almost three years ago now, so in August of 20. And I've had a lot more time since then. And um, so my, my time is much less structured than it was running a software company. And... I was bluntly also very burned out. I'd run that company for, what, 12 years at that point, uh, done a private equity majority recap in 18, and really had accomplished uh, my mission to, to Andy's point that I really wanted to do, and it was time to step away. But a lot of that was I was absolutely burned out, and that is probably the dirty little secret that entrepreneurs and VCs don't like talking about a lot, but there is a finite lifespan to how long somebody can run one company um, and, and be effective. And I'd hit that point with team support. Um, 
So I don't really, I don't have something that's that all consuming that is taking my time up right now. Uh, I am very lucky. We've got two amazing kids, uh, both actually at Colgate. We have a freshman and a junior at Colgate. And I, this is a time in their lives. They can travel and do some fun stuff. Uh, and so I've been taking a lot of time and spending time with them doing travel with the family and with the kids. So that's been an amazing ability for me to, to use my time that way. So my time is much less structured uh, than it was. I'm really enjoying that uh, It letting me decompress a little bit. Um, will I go back and start another company? I don't know. Uh, right now, I don't have the idea or the motivation, um, but if it comes, um, we'll see. I'm curious, you, know, you talked about getting to the point where you're burned out. Um, you know, Wills and I often talk about how far an entrepreneur can take a company. And I welcome your perspective on that one. Getting burned out is one thing. Knowing that, you know, you're you're not the guy or the gal to keep taking it forward. You know, I can fly a single engine fixed wing plane, but now you put me into a jet and I could probably figure it out, but probably not the best guy there. Can, can you talk a little bit about your sense of that? Because both as an investor and as an entrepreneur, those are things that you need to think about or you should be thinking about. It's a great analogy. I'm not sure how apt it is, but I'll, I'll go with it <laughs> on flying. Um, I can fly anything. I mean, you give me a little training and I'm, I guarantee I can fly a 747 and do it very competently. Would I enjoy being an airline pilot? No, I wouldn't. And so that's where I think the analogy gets kind of interesting. Yeah. A CEO of a 10, 20, 30 person startup company is a uh, different personality and a very different skill set than a CEO of a 10,000 person company. And Andy, you touched on it earlier, where the larger the company is, the more disconnected the CEO becomes with really what's happening and how hard it is for them to discover the the real truth. And again, going back to the analogy of airplanes, uh, flying a 747, you have much less direct feedback in what the airplane is doing in the airplane turns and moves a lot slower than a lighter airplane where you can literally feel every little puff of air and can turn the airplane on a dime. So I may be taking the analogy way too far, but it's an interesting one. Um, um, the, the, it, this is really. I, I was just going to say when you said that you used the word enjoyment. Yeah, and you know, I I just found that so so apt. Just uh, you know, I did. I still remember getting on an elevator, asking somebody uh, in in the in my office building where they worked, and they said Greenfield Consulting, and I realized it was time for me to go. I had never seen this person. I didn't know them. I said, "How long have you worked there?" They said, "A year," and I'm going, oh, "Okay." And it was starting I, to get more than I enjoyed. I did that one time. There, I was walking to the hallway and I was walking by. I'm like, oh, hi, 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 who are you? I was like, oh, I'm Bill. Oh, I'm Robert. Oh, nice to meet you. What do you do here? I started here. We had this nice little conversation. Had, I didn't mention probably who I was um, and the other fact that I was a CEO. And we kind of had a nice little chat. He goes on his way. And about two days later, you know, I think he finally realized who I was, that I was a CEO, and he was a little mortified. But yes, yeah, kind of same thing. It actually is kind of fun to do that occasionally. But um, 
Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Robert, was there a moment where, because I think this is so uh, timely in discussions that you know we've been having on our end, was there a moment maybe in the team support case where you said, hey, I think it's time to start thinking about you know, the next phase, the next chapter that may not involve me or, you know, a plan for me to exit? It was probably more stark to me when I sold my last company, uh, a company called Sundance. We did software for TV stations and we were 60, 65 people when we sold the company and sold it to a large strategic. And so we went, I went from being the CEO of a 65 person company to being a very minor Flunky in a 3,500-person public company. And almost overnight, I realized pretty quickly that, that was not a good home for me. I remember talking to my investment banker on the closing dinner and saying, yeah, I'm going to give this big company thing a shot. And he just chuckled at me and said, Robert, you are unemployable. And I think he just meant it. I was uh, an entrepreneur and very much would not enjoy working for other people. And he was right. I had a one-year contract in that company. I ran my company six months and got promoted to an enterprise sales role for the next six months. And uh, of that one-year contract, I lasted one year and one day and gave my give my notice. Um, I think it does have to be fun what you're doing. And no, not every day is going to be enjoyable. Some days are just going to suck. And but broadly, when you wake up and realize it's a Monday morning and are kind of dreading that it's Monday a good indication that that's time to move on somewhere else. And I, with team support, I kind of got to that point where I just wasn't having fun. Um, it was, I was burned out. And again, I'd done what I'd come to do. Uh, I built a company from scratch with a, um, literally an idea sketched out on a, uh, on a yellow legal pad, turned into a product and built a company around it, got investment and sold it. And, so I kind of checked all the boxes and then it became just not as fun as it was. So it was time to go off and do something else. I love that maybe as a simple test, maybe we should have more meetings with our founders on Mondays and find out if they're dreading dreading showing up. Um, but it's not something you tell anybody. It's something you very much keep to yourself and you hide. Yeah. And you, as, uh, as a leader, whether it's on a sports team or as a company, you are in many ways an actor. Uh, you have to portray the role that people expect of you. And if that's being happy on Monday morning, that's be happy on Monday morning. I learned very, very early on that if I rolled into the office one day grumpy in a crappy mood, the entire company was grumpy and in an entire in a crappy mood. And all because they're reflecting on what they saw me doing. And that's a really dangerous place to be. Robert, as far as keeping, you know, the things that you keep to yourself, I'm hoping maybe there's one that you can share now. You've lived a very charmed life um, by many, you know, I think measures, family, work, play, professional. You know, I think for, for an outsider looking in, you've succeeded at numerous things. Is there anything that you've totally failed at, flunked at, you know, like you're, you're, this just did not work out. Maybe I don't talk much about it, but here was a total F for me. Um, no, but let me caveat that. Um, have there been things that I have done that I have not done well or failed at? Sure, everybody has. Um, however, I just tend not to dwell on them. I uh, am an eternal optimist, and I always have been. 
And I don't know where that came from, but uh, I think that is perhaps a reason that I'm an entrepreneur and maybe the fact, the fact that I'm a, what other people call a risk taker. Uh, I think you have to be in this business an optimist. You have to believe that you can do what you're going to do, even over uh, you know, potentially overwhelming odds. Um, and it may take a while to do that, but you know, how they feel to things, sure. Do any of them, do I frankly think about them or fret about any of those? No, I really don't. And I have to kind of stretch to think about something that um, I failed at. If, I, if it didn't work, I just put it aside, moved on and did something else. Let me frame the question slightly differently. Um, if you could rewind the tape on a piece of the Robert Johnson story or your life, and you know, turn left where you turned right, or stepped on the gas where you hit the brake, anything you'd say, yeah, this is, you know, I might have handled that one differently. Um. So I think there's two different questions there. What you're getting at, I think, is, you know, kind of, do you have any regrets in your life that you would have changed? And I, no, I really wouldn't. And as you all said, I've been very lucky. The decisions I made have worked out quite well. Um, were they all the perfect decisions? No, not at all. But you know, I made them work. Are there, um, yeah, there are little things. I was like, yeah, I should, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I shouldn't have gotten mad and yelled at an employee or something. Sure, hundreds of those, thousands. Mm -hmm. of those. Um, but now I, it's it's one of those interesting theoretical questions. Would you change anything in your life? I I really wouldn't. Um, it's, um, I've been very lucky, uh, and I worked very hard for that. But, yeah. um, yeah, short answer is no, I wouldn't. So, Robert, there, there are two things I just I had uh, jotted down I thought were interesting. You know, when you were talking about 10-year stints, you used the expression, it takes that long to get it done. Yeah. And you just said, I made them work. I made it work. Which leads me to team support. And... You were quite unique and, you know, Wills and I have been doing, you know, early stage investing for a long, long time. And you, frankly, you were the, I think, and Wills, tell me if I got this wrong, you're the only founder we invested with who looked at us when he was starting his company and said, this is what I am going to do. I am going to build this company to the point where it gets to $5 million of ARR, at which point it will be saleable for a multiple, current multiples, I think we're six to eight in the industry, five to seven, something like that. And that's what we're going to do. Now, again, everybody says stuff, you know, number, but there were two interesting differences, maybe, maybe three. The first one was, we normally don't hear somebody say, this is, you know, how far I'm going to take it with the exception of, you know, I want to build a unicorn. Lots of people want to build a unicorn. The second thing was how clear-eyed you were about doing this. You saw a beginning and an end. And the third thing is we always talk about, and you've heard us talk about this in our, uh, you know, TIA up at Colgate. There's a thing we call the do to say ratio. 
you know, what percent of the things you say do you do? And you delivered on an, you know, a one-to-one here, exactly that. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, instead of saying, I'm going to build a unicorn, you knew exactly what you wanted to build. You know, it was a, you know, 3,500 square foot home with a swimming pool and a whatever. I'm, you know, not going to build a mega mansion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I remember those meetings quite well. And I think some of my perspective on that was um, I I have been and I'm still in many y'all's shoes as an investor as well. And I've seen too many decks where somebody comes in and says, I'm raising half a million dollars. I'm going to turn to a billion dollar company with no more capital. Well, my BS detector goes off on that one pretty quickly. And we... I also am a little bit different than some other company builders in that my goal was obviously to build a great company, but from a financial perspective is bring the most return for me. And if you raise a ton of money and get diluted, all of a sudden the CEO owns 5% of a company and doesn't make a lot of money on the transaction. And we were able to grow the company incredibly capital efficiently. Um, to the point where I look at deals today and I, I just shake my head on the capital inefficiency of some of these companies. We were um, well, we were close to 2x recurring revenue of the amount of money we had invested in the company. And that is unheard of in today's uh, growth at all, well, maybe last year's growth at all <laughs> costs of uh, venture capital economy. Um, and that allowed me to keep a lot of the company um, and, you know, do very well. Um, you're asking some great questions, Andy and Wells. Jeez. Um, you don't know me way too well. It's, yeah, I did have a vision for the company. We were fairly mature at the point we took external capital. Um, and it certainly was not perhaps a, a linear and as smooth path as you're painting on this, on this call. Uh, there was a lot of rocky roads in there. Uh, we did take additional capital, um, which we structured as a venture debt deal before venture debt was cool. Um, and that was actually ended up being a great deal for us. That was one of the the smartest deals that pat myself in the back. One of the smartest deals I did was take some venture debt. Um, as, as somebody who looked at the deal and turned it down and goes, Robert, you're asking for debt, um, a, a equity level risk at debt level returns. I said, yep, I am. And it worked. Um, and that the company, the people who invest in that did well, not as well as the equity investors, but they were very happy with the deal and, and, and made good money on it. Some of um, us did both. Yes, you did. I, <laughs> uh, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it, uh, it's, it, it's not, it was not a linear path for investment to uh, exit. It was a long, hard path. And um, yeah, any, I get asked for advice to entrepreneurs all the time. And one of my, most recurring piece of advice is this is hard. I mean, you, this is really, really hard work. You do have to be committed to it. You do have to have that sense of mission. You do have to enjoy it. And it's going to take five to 10 years to build a company to a point where it's worth doing. And there were several times early on where, in fact, there's one time before we raised capital, we were delayed building the product. It was, I don't know, six months plus late getting out the door. 
I was the one writing the payroll checks. I had a very, very small team, but we couldn't sell anything because we had no product. Um, and I went to my guys and said, hey, um, it's time to dust your resumes off. I, I think, you know, within a couple months, we're done because I I can't keep writing checks to the company. And thankfully, we got a couple of deals um, and we started growing the company and it, it took off from there. And frankly, the same thing happened in my last company. We had, I had one customer in particular in my first company that if they had not ordered a product when they did, the company would have been out of business because we were out of cash. Um, so there's been several moments like that where the companies were teetering on their edges, um, about to collapse. My most fearful moments were those, and I've got at least two of those, um, probably three, where the whole thing was about to go poof, bye-bye. Um, and you've got to that's go. Where you, and Robert, that's where you had your own capital invested. Um, yeah. Um, it, early, early on, yeah, I had my own capital invested, and we just, I read a lot of money into the company. We were unable to, we were slow getting the product out the door. And then when we finally did, we expect all these orders to come in and they didn't. We just hadn't figured out what we nicely call product to market fit um, these days. I don't think I'd heard the term then, uh, but it was just, you know, we, it took us a while to get the product ready. And then once we rolled the product out, uh, we were about 80% right, which was good. And that's, again, something I tell founders is don't worry about perfection in the product. Get it close enough. Get it about 80% right because you're not going to be able to get it 100% right until you get it in, in customers' uh, hands and then let them help you iterate the product. And I don't I, I forget who said it, but it's a line I use a lot is perfection is the enemy of done. And just get the product out there, get it shipping, start selling it, and then figure out what you missed, what you didn't get it right, and fix it. Robert, just two two questions related that came out of something you just said. Um, do you think great all great companies go through some crucible moment? And do you think entrepreneurs these days are prepared well enough for those crucible moments? If yes to the 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 former. Uh, the latter question is easy. No, no one's prepared for that. No one is ever going to be prepared for you being one phone call away from what you invested last five years, blood, sweat, and tears, your capital, other people's capital in from going away. No one's ever prepared for that. And frankly, nor should you be. If entrepreneurs and founders knew that heartache and stress, they'd never do what we do. So don't tell them. Um, let them, you know, let them think being a CEO of a company is an easy thing to do and they'll keep doing it. Um, to the first part, I, probably I... Um, by design, no, but I would say every company, especially in the early stages, goes through some moment where it's all about to go bye-bye. You're, you're one sale or one product or one something away from it all just collapsing. I remember reading uh, Elon Musk's book or the book about Elon Musk a couple of years ago, talking about SpaceX, and they had enough capital to do one final rocket launch when they were developing the initial, the early Dragon, or sorry, early Falcon. And if that one hadn't reached orbit, they were done. They were going to pack their bags and go home. And luckily that one made it to orbit, but they were that one launch away from SpaceX not being SpaceX. And I think every company has been through some moment like that. Um, and it's, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly challenging. It certainly adds a lot of gray hair, um, adds a lot of stress to you. Um, 
And in a couple of cases that I've been through that, it actually did really bond the company together. It was a formative moment for the company. Um, you found out pretty quickly who on your team you could trust and wanted to take into battle and who that you needed to replace. Um, in fact, I remember vividly uh, in my first company, we had one of those seminal moments. We were hours away from the company shutting down and the entire team was, I mean, literally 80% of the company was on site at a customer site, sleeping under conference room tables and staying up 24 hours trying to make this product work, except for one guy. One guy did. One guy was not all that invested in it. And uh, it was obvious to me and obvious to everybody else in the company. And uh, he was quickly shown the door. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've recently been thinking, we've seen some companies go through crucible moments and... Uh... You know, I don't think entrepreneurs, it's hard enough to start something from zero, enter into a competitive market, get to, you know, some level of scale, call it 40 plus million in revenue, and then realize like your hardest times may be ahead of you. <laughs> like that moment may happen. Like you think you've already. Who would like to say to somebody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, th Robert, I just thinking about this. Uh, and your role, uh, you know, you've been there and done that when it comes to being an entrepreneur. You've been an investor. You've been a mentor. If you were going to, if you walked into a room full of young entrepreneurs, people who were just getting out of the gate, and you had, you know, a minute or two to leave them with a thought or two about what they were about to embark upon. And this, I guess, is a version of, you know, what advice would you give? But given the the breadth of your experience, and I'd love to hear what you would tell these folks. I would steal one of the best marketing taglines ever written. Just do it. Especially for young entrepreneurs, and I've told this to a number of them, um, you will never be younger or broker than you are right now. So there's never going to be a better time to start a company. Conversely, you don't have any experience. And that's always the great balance of youth versus experience. And there's a benefit to uh, both of those, and there's a detriment to both of those. But uh, with an idea, you don't have necessarily the breadth of experience to understand if that's a good idea or a bad idea because you may not understand the market. The good news is with lack of experience, you aren't constrained with the, um, you know, what everybody else has done and well, that what work we've tried it before kind of mentality. So yeah, I would, my one piece of advice to any young entrepreneur is just do it. Um, you're gonna get it wrong. It's gonna be hard, you're gonna pivot, um, but give it a shot now. If it doesn't work, fine, go get a job. But it's a lot harder to be an entrepreneur and take that risk when you've got a mortgage and kids and a spouse um, and a lifestyle than it is when you're in your young 20s when, eh, what the heck, what do you, what's the worst? You'll be broke? You're broke now. I like that. We always tell them, listen, at this point in your life, you can live under a bridge and eat roadkill if you have to. A lot easier to do that now. Um, I'm not a big fan of roadkill anymore, although in my uh, 20s, I probably would have eaten it. So, so Robert, you, you, you've been an investor for a long time, um, you know, and I, I'd argue now maybe even more so. I know you're on the board of a, a venture capital firm based out in Texas. 
uh, you bring an operator's mindset to it as well. Somebody who's built companies. Um, are there certain, and we've talked about kind of the resilience, the, you know, all, all the kind of things that we've discussed earlier, are there specific things that you look for in founders and, or maybe companies, maybe, you know, the top two things that are most important to you when evaluating an opportunity? Uh, cause I, I feel like you have a slightly different ethos around investing and company building than you know, the, the, the prevailing wisdom in the venture capital community, if you could just kind of share, Hey, the top two things that I, that are most important to me and leaders and companies. The most important thing is to make sure that the investor and the CEO and or founding team are aligned on the path forward. So you mentioned unicorns earlier. Um, I'm not a fan of that broadly, but more to the point, we invest uh, for both multiples of return, but also an IRR. And so we want to be in and out of a company in a relatively short amount of time. If we're invested in 20 years in a company and we make three X on our money, that doesn't really, you know, from an IRR perspective, doesn't really do much for us. So we want to make sure that we are on similar timelines as the CEO, that they actually want to sell the company. The ones that worry me is the ones that say, we want to build this great company and that sounds bad. We all want to build great companies, but they want to be in it for the long term and be running this company at 20 years down the line. I would much rather invest money in them today and have them do an exit of some sort within three to five years and return our capital. Um, you know, we in the venture world, to put it very mercurially, is our job is to make money, point blank. Um, we do that by investing capital and companies getting equity in return and growing those companies, but we don't make any money until they sell the company. Mm -hmm. And it's shocking to me, the number of CEOs that come to me with a pitch book and say, we're profitable by year three. If you're venture bad and you're profitable, you have made a serious mistake. You should never be profitable. Cash flow positive. Sure. Cash flow is break even. That's fine. But profitability is something you should not be striving for in our world of in the venture capital world of today. Um, we want growth and we want that growth translated into evaluation for the company down the line. We can sell that company and return capital uh, and with multiples to the investors. It is a different type of investing than a bank does, for example. And a lot of uh, entrepreneurial CEOs don't understand that and don't understand the math involved in that. Um, is there that's, that's one thing that we definitely look for is make sure we understand that. Um, I tend to look at the product as well. I've always been a product person and kind of the chief product visionary of my companies. And so I tend to look at the company through the lens of a product person, especially the technology uh, companies. And yeah, I get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes they're great products that just don't have a market fit that I still scratch my head why that doesn't work. And other times they're products, I think, that are nuts that have amazing takeoff. And the classic example there was Twitter. I, if, if you would give me a pitch book on Twitter back in the day, I would have said, no way, this is a stupid idea. And I would have been dead wrong. Same here. <clears throat> Robert, I'm curious, because uh, team support was, it was how long to exit from the kind of first line of code? Uh, 10 years. We were started in 08, exited in 18. Got it. And and I think earlier you had said it takes that long. Andy you was know. talking about kind of long tenures. Is does that require you to have a different mindset as an investor, given that you're 
or invest at a slightly later stage, given that you're targeting kind of nearer term exits with these with your businesses compared to your experience as an entrepreneur building companies? Yeah, I, I don't do seed anymore. Uh, I used to do seed and um, I think it, it's from a return standpoint, it's very, very, very difficult in seed. Um, if you look at the spectrum of investments at a very high level, you have kind of seed and angels, friends, family, and fools sometimes. Then you have VC of various stages, early stage to late stage. Then you have private equity that basically buys all or a majority of a company. And each of those have successively less potential returns, but successively less risk as well. And you know, it's, a, it's an interesting spectrum. We as investors at Blossom Street, and generally my personal investment theory is we invest a little bit later stage, not private equity, but in a you know, let's assume a company is about a 10-year lifespan, which I think is about right for a, a SaaS company in today's market. We like to invest in about year five. Um, that's We've got product market fit. The company's growing. Um, they've figured out broadly what they need to do and what the market is. But they need capital to scale that, execute that, and by you know they're probably getting a little tired. They realize it's a battle; it's a, a marathon, not a sprint, as they say. Um, and by you know three to five years after our investment, the company will be in a position, and the founding team will be in a position to be ready for an exit. And if we could talk about the exit, you've you've made them happen. You've watched them happen. Any high-level advice now that you've gone through the ones that you have around having a successful exit versus never having an exit at all? Just you know, just kind of words of wisdom, tenets that people should be following or thinking about now. I will say two things that are mutually exclusive, but I'll explain them. Never build a company purely with a thought of an exit, but when building a company, always have the thought of an exit in the back of your mind. So I, I say again, two very different things. Um, when you're building a company, build the product and the team and everything else for the market and to be able to sell the product to customers. Uh, I have seen companies that they literally were started from day one with the idea of being acquired by a handful of, of companies they had targeted when they started the company. And I don't think that's, that, that did not work out well in those cases. Um, but as you grow the company, always consider uh, that you may want to be having an exit at the end of the day and do things strategically for that, primarily around bookkeeping. Be smart about how you uh, keep your balance sheets, how you take your books, um, make sure they're clean. Um, you make sure you've got a CFO or an accounting team that knows how to do that. Um, don't put personal things on your company. Don't have your personal car or whatever. Uh, on the balance sheet, keep that all very, very separate, run it very cleanly and very professionally. Um, especially as you get closer to starting an exit process, uh, that becomes critical. You've got to have a absolutely clean company, um, just dumb things, not dumb things, but actually very important things that most people don't think about. Revenue recognition, that is a huge issue when it comes to acquisitions. Legal contracts, again, huge issue. Make sure those are buttoned up, make sure those are tight. Um, do a review of all of those before you even start the process, because once you start the process, you're you're kind of committed. Uh, and once you actually get somebody who's interested and in start due diligence, they will dig into all of that. And if you have issues there, 
they will eat you alive and will crush your valuation late stage in the game. I know that from personal scars that I have. Um, finally, when you are ready for a transaction, hire a banker. You need somebody professionally that, that supports you that's on your team that understands how to sell a company and how the mechanics of that work. Um, it is shockingly hard to sell a company. There's a lot of moving parts, and most entrepreneurs do it maybe once in their career. Uh, I've been lucky I've done it three times. And having a banker saved the deal in numerous number of times. Uh, and in fact, in our last deal, a banker uh, made us a significant amount of money um, just on how he presented the company and did a great job marketing and selling the company um, and was able to close a deal uh, that you know worked very well for both sides. But uh, we would, I don't think we'd be able to do that without their help. That's super helpful. Um, if I could just go back quickly, the debt equity thing that we discussed earlier, um, and you mentioned that being one of the most, you know, I think one of the best or most clever decisions that you made for team support um, in terms of how you capitalize the business is the takeaway from that for an entrepreneur. Hey, if you can get a venture debt deal done here on relatively agreeable terms, that's a great thing to do because, you know, you avoid dilution and you have investors that are taking equity risk for a fixed income instrument. I'm going to answer the question more broadly. I think the takeaway is don't necessarily do what people tell you you have to do. And if people tell you that you can't do something, it's impossible. Don't necessarily listen to them. So I've always looked at problems a little bit differently and looked for a way kind of sideways around a problem that was thorny and sticky that I could tackle a different way. Uh, taking debt instead of equity was one of those uh, one of those things that we did. Um, we could have taken an equal number um, amount of equity and diluted the company more, and would have uh, it, the time for sale would have cost me a fair amount of money in equity. Um, when I started looking thinking about a debt deal, nobody thought that deal could get done, and we were not bankable by a large enough uh, company. That market has changed. The, the venture debt market has changed dramatically in the last five or six years. Um, and it, there's a lot more providers in that space. Although I think that with interest rates going up may have changed yeah. quite a bit. Uh, I was in the market twice um, for much larger debt, uh, more traditional, but still risky debt last uh, four years. And the market is, is much different than it was five or six years ago when I did this last. Um, so I can get around to actually answering your question. Yeah, if you can take debt as opposed to equity as part of your capital stack, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I think it helps investors, it helps founders, it helps everybody. You've got to be very careful of how it's structured and make sure you can support that debt and make sure you're in turn, you know, online with the lenders and make sure they know what they're getting into. But uh, it is absolutely, if you can do non-dilutive financing company, I it, yes, it makes a lot of sense. We're getting close to our hour here. Um, and at the end, we like to do these rapid fire questions. But I have one thing that I was just looking through my notes way back, you know, your Colgate days, you majored in comp sci and psych, which 
looking at that, I mean, I couldn't think of a better combination of studies for starting companies, right? It's kind of left, right brain. It's hard, soft skills. You, it's, you know, understanding what makes people tick and then trying to figure out, you know, how to build something for them. How intentional was, was your major? Like, did you go in saying, Hey, these are the things that I'm going to, these are the skills that I'm going to develop. And yeah, I don't quite know where they're going to take me, but they're going to be really important versus you just fell into them out of pure curiosity. Absolutely. Fell in them. I had no intentionality about that at all. Uh, it, you're right. It, it, yeah, I can spin a story about the intersection of technology and, and human brain study. Yep. Um, and it sounds really great. 30 years later, the reality is I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I was a typical 18-year-old. Uh, I Computers were always easy to me, and I, I had a couple of AP credits, and I started that major early on just kind of because it was a thing to do. I think I looked at econ at one point and decided not to do that. Psychology was um, really because the job I had at the time, I was doing computer work in the HR department, human resources department of a local uh, healthcare company. And I kind of fell into that job and kind of learned about what HR was. And that kind of led me to, we actually were developing a uh, psych profile test, kind of like Myers-Briggs, but it's own little adventure on that. And I was doing all the computer work on that. So that got me interested in psychology testing and Jungian psychology and got me taking psych 101 at Colgate and kind of enjoyed it and ended up with a double major. Uh, again, there was no intentionality about that at all. Uh, I look back and what I did being uh, a double major, D1 athlete, uh, in a fraternity, running a student activity, having a serious girlfriend and going, how the hell did I do all that? Especially now watching two kids in college. Um, I still don't know, but uh, it you know, worked out fairly well. He's going to say, go ahead, Will. Well, I was going to say, it's really interesting you say that. You know, we, we ran the incubator at Colgate for so many years. And if there was one theme that we saw across, you know, students coming in that were like more likely to be successful, it was the ones that were full-time students getting good grades. They were full-time athletes at a division one school. And then we're raising their hand to say, Hey, I also want to be a full-time entrepreneur and build a company. You know, you ask a busy person how to, you know, how they find time in the week, right? You don't ask somebody who's, or whatever that phrase is, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we often saw that at Colgate uh, with the students that, you know, the ones that were doing things that you look back on, you're like, how could you have done all these things? Were well, it, were so it's funny. You said good grades. I would say that's the one thing that I didn't do well at. I did not have great grades coming out of Colgate. Really? Um, and I made the mistake of telling our son that one time and he lost it over well, my head well, often and he's got a higher GPA than I ever thought about. That's not, uh, and that's, um, I, that was actually, I talked about intentionality. That was intentional. Actually, I remember telling my parents this, um, that I was going to take full advantage of my four years at Colgate and do everything I could and realize that, yeah, probably the one thing that's going to suffer may be grades. And ironically, that probably more than anything else may have led me to a life of entrepreneurship because I graduated without a job. And if I had graduated with a three, five, I probably would have had a job on Wall Street somewhere. My life would have been completely different as it was. I think I had a two, seven and um, no job offers. And that kind of led me into what I did. So, um, you know, life is this bizarre series of twists and turns. And as I said earlier, I'm the eternal optimist and it's worked out very well, but um, I've never kind of said, well, was me. I didn't have a job. So 
you know, life sucks. I just kind of, it all kind of worked out. <laughs> Robert, that is fascinating because I would have expected you at a 4.0. Oh, God, no. I, I feel maybe, like maybe that is maybe the one little underbelly of Robert Johnson that we didn't know about. Like, <laughs> no, but, but Wills, Robert had a great rationale for it. I'm going to, you know, <clears throat> suck the marrow out of this. I'm going to do everything I can. And I, the reality is I can't, uh, can't do well. Uh, I, 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 something's going to give a little bit. And I'm also smiling, Robert, when you talk about the kids, because somehow my daughters got a hold of my report cards. Uh, I don't know how. And so I can't tell you how often I heard, dad, you seem to come out okay and you didn't do that well in school. So, and the only other one is when it comes to resume advice and they turn and say, dad, the last resume you wrote was for teaching jobs and philosophy. So thanks anyway. Um, I, am, I have never put a resume together. Um, actually, I had to laugh. So I do contract flying. I fly other people's jets now. And somebody actually asked me for a flying resume. I'm going to do what? So I put together a resume that kind of showed my flying skill or flying experience. And it was, uh, I, and I had, I totally forgot how to do a resume. I would have never, ever resonated since my senior year in college. Uh, I will tell you that one thing, go back to college for a second. Um, probably the, one of those impactful things I did as a student was I ran uh, CUTV, Colgate University Television. And uh, we didn't have TIA back in the day. We didn't have entrepreneurship incubators and things like that. So the running the TV station was as close to that as I could get. I took it over and it was basically defunct TV station. Um, it was really not, it hadn't done anything. So I took it over and revitalized it and grew it into really a very vital student organization. But man, I learned so many lessons about what not to do. When you are running a volunteer organization, your employees, and I use that in air quotes, are pure volunteer students, um, you you learn very quickly how not to manage people and what mistakes not to make. So as a 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old, I learned what not to do, which I think helped me in many ways when I actually became a CEO at a very young age that I had already had some of those mistakes. So I'm a huge fan of whether it's uh, entrepreneurship incubators or running a student activity doing that and getting that leadership uh, in college. That is, uh, you asked me about advice to give to the students, and that's one of the main ones I've always given. Which which brings us to our rapid fire two-minute drill here, Robert. So we'll ask you 10-second answers on this one, uh, and this will be all top of mind without a lot of thinking. Are you ready? No. Not <laughs> <laughs> top of mind, rapid fire answer. <laughs> okay. Best decision you ever made? Oh, Marion Kelly. Worst decision you ever made? I can't say Marion Kelly. Um, God, I don't know. I don't, I, we talked about this. I don't do bad decisions. I don't have regrets. Um, there's a thousand of them, not none, one that really sticks up. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to say pass on that question. Cool. Best advice you can offer around hiring or building a team? Have fun. Um, hire people that you enjoy working with because you're going to spend a lot of time with them. So you're looking back on the 21-year-old Robert Johnson starting his career. Knowing what you know today, what would you tell him? You're an idiot. <laughs> um, you're an idiot. You don't know anything. 
Um, you have no experience, limited skill set. The only thing you really have is to work your ass off and work insanely hard and just make it happen. So, and that's what I did. And that's advice I give to anybody. Nice. So this is an extra challenging one because you're a guy who has multiple passions. But in your the next chapter, if you were writing a brand new Robert Johnson chapter and you had to do something totally different from anything you've done before, can't be flying, can't be an entrepreneur, what would you do? Some fun questions. I, so two things, and I don't know which one I'd do. I, I get in a sailboat and sail the Caribbean. I think that would be fascinating. Um, and I may yet do that. It's it is very similar to flying, um, and that level of freedom and going back to an earlier topic of being in control, I think would be fascinating. Um, I've also kicked around the idea, and I don't know if I'll ever do this, but going back to school and getting a PhD in in something. Uh, and being a student again, I think that would be interesting. With better grades, maybe. Um, <laughs> and the final one, Robert, uh, when all is said and done, the epitaph, your epitaph, what would you like it to be? I live life. <laughs> and, and Robert, from a, an outside perspective, you definitely have by any measure. Listen, man, I can't thank you enough Uh this has been a, a, a true blast. I can see Wills has something he wants to say. So no, this has just been a ton of fun. It was really, uh, you know, as Andy said at the outset, we know you, and now we feel like we really know you, um, or at least know more about you. So uh, really appreciate you uh, carving out this time, sharing wisdom, sharing personal experiences, and uh, hopefully it's helpful to our audience. I think there's a lot of gems that were mentioned here that I was jotting down. So thank you. Well, Eddie and Wills, thank you guys. Uh, as you both said, I know you guys very well. Um, it's been a very, very fun conversation. Like all of us, I've had a lot of interviews over the years and most of them are kind of stayed and professional and boring. And this has been a ton of fun. Uh, I really just, I've enjoyed this. Thanks y'all. Awesome. And Robert, I'll see you Thursday. I'll see you soon, my friend. Look forward to it. <laughs> Take care. Safe travels. Thanks y'all. See you soon. Thank you. Once again, my name is Wills Hapworth, and I'm a partner at TIA Ventures. Thank you for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed this interview on It's the People. If so, please visit our website where you can find many more like this. We also encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter where we celebrate other stories of successful early-stage companies and founding teams and share their insights and secrets to success.